Today we are talking about one of the most sadistic and prolific serial killers in American history, a killer whose insatiable bloodlust was so powerful that it caused him to take the lives of dozens of young men across the Midwest. This is Larry Eiler, aka The Highway Killer. Well, howdy there, stranger. I'm Jordy. And I'm Brad. And welcome back to Beers with Queers, the true crime podcast where I research a case and Brad here and potentially you guys know nothing about it. So today we're going to be talking about a real dirtbag named Larry Eiler, or as he was known to the media, the highway killer. Because of his affinity for picking up his victims and dumping their bodies close to the interstates of the Midwest. Now, Before we get too into it, I do want to give a very brief side conversation, some time to shine. So quite a few people have asked since we started this podcast back up in December, do we actually drink beer while we record it? And uh, the quick answer is we haven't been. So to give a little backstory, we recorded the first episode twice and we did it the first time drinking beer, but I didn't like the way it sounded on the audio. And so we filmed it again without it, and so I've kind of been afraid to test it out again. But we're going to give it another go this time. So we are putting the beers back into queers. And so we'll see how it goes. You guys let us know if you enjoy it or not, and we'll uh, we'll adjust accordingly. So continuing the trend, we started with Richard Rogers, the episode before last, and talking about gay serial killers that aren't Gacy or Dahmer. We have moved on to Larry and this guy is like the Ted Bundy of gay serial killers. He was a man who, to a lot of people that didn't know him well, you know, he was an outstanding and kind man, but of course Larry had a very dark side and an almost unquenchable sadomasochistic bloodlust. He murdered at least 21 young men across several states in the span of just a few years, with police all but certain that his true body count is much higher. So let's just jump into the story of The Highway Killer. Have you heard this one before? I haven't. Okay, so this one is kind of, it's another one that's kind of gained traction in the last few years. So some of you may have heard it, some of you may not, but you never heard us tell it. So on August 3rd, 1978, a 19-year-old man, former Marine named Craig Long, was lying in the woods by the side of the interstate, bleeding to death. He had been stabbed through the chest and his lung had been punctured. He knew he had to get help and fast, but was afraid to move because his attacker was still nearby, lurking in the darkness and searching for him. Craig knew if he did not continue to play dead and keep his eyes closed, then his attacker would surely hear him and finish the job that he started. But of course time was running out. If he did not get help soon, he would bleed out and become the first victim of, unknown to him, a man who would go on to be one of the most prolific serial killers in American history, Larry Eiler. So now that we've got your attention with that, let's of course rewind and figure out how we got to this point, starting with the birth of a monster. So Larry Eiler was born on December 21st, 1952 in Crawfordsville, Indiana to George and Shirley Eiler. The youngest of four children, it was pretty well documented that Larry was doomed from the start. His father was an extreme alcoholic and very physically and verbally abusive to both Shirley and all four kids. Eventually, though, Shirley was able to work up the strength to leave George, and in 1955, the two got divorced, with Shirley gaining full custody of the kids. And so, a little bit of a happy ending, however, with that presented a whole new list of problems. Mainly, Shirley now was a single mother with four kids to take care of, so money was very tight. This meant that Shirley was working multiple jobs just to barely make ends meet, and that meant having very little time to look after or spend time with her kids. So more often than not, Larry and his other siblings were left alone with a string of random babysitters or relatives, or sometimes she would just leave them alone and had the oldest watch them, who was only 10 at the time. It even got so bad that at one point Shirley considered sending the two youngest, Larry and one of his sisters, to an orphanage. 
So eventually, Shirley began giving Larry and his youngest sister to several different foster families who looked after them and cared for the kids, but Shirley always made a point to visit her two youngest kids often, and every time they were met, every time they met, they were more than excited to see their mother. And so Larry himself would later say that this was these mini reunions actually brought them closer together as a family. And of course, you know, I really do feel for the Eiler family. Shirley did love her children. She was trying to be a good mother, you know, taking care of her, take all of her kids by herself. And so she, um, she worked hard. Now, eventually by 1957, Shirley would remarry and was finally able to reunite the entire family under one roof for the first time in almost two years. However, this happiness was short-lived as it soon became apparent that her new husband was just as much of a shitbag as her first husband. He was an abusive alcoholic who verbally and physically abused the kids. Now, this marriage was followed by a third marriage just four years later. And again, this guy was another shitbag who frequently abused the whole family. Larry even recounted later how often one of his stepdads would get drunk and hold his head under scalding hot water as a form of punishment. So, of course, you feel bad for him now, but it's like they always say, feel bad for the kid, don't feel bad for the adult. Not everybody that gets abused grows up to be a monster. Yeah, so it's not an excuse for what he did. But at this time when he's a kid, you know, you feel you feel for them. It wasn't his fault. Even at school, Larry was found, found little relief from his torment as he often became the target of bullies who picked on him for his poor upbringing and the fact that he came from a broken home, which, you know, kids are shitheads. It's horrible. It's He's like, I'm already down, so how about I go and be tortured because I'm already down. So, but yeah, and the fact is, like his parents are like, "Haha, your parents are divorced." It's like I can't control that. That's not my yeah. problem. Your family's poor. Sorry, not everybody can be rich. But of course, due to this constant barrage of abuse, Larry began to grow angry, and he began to act out, causing his mother to take him for a psychological evaluation. Which I do want to pause for a moment and just say, "Good for Shirley," because remember, this is the 1950s. And so that was not heard of. Mental illness was not a thing. Going to therapy was almost non-existent. So the fact that she actually took the time to be like, hey, obviously something's bothering wrong with him. Let's go get him checked out. So like I said, she was trying. Shirley was a good mother. She was trying hard, her best, with what she had. Now, the evaluation showed that Larry was of average intelligence, but showed severe signs of insecurity and an almost crippling fear of abandonment. Of course, Dr. knew this was from his very turbulent upbringing, and his home life, with no real stable father figure to look up to, and being left with many strangers during his formative years. And like I said, you know, when he was from like one to like five, all that time wasn't spent with like his mother or family, it was just spent with random strangers. So you can't blame him for having abandonment issues. In fact, you should expect it. Oh, yeah. Now, doctors suggested that Larry needed to get away from his home for a while in order to better adjust, and so he was sent to a school for Catholic boys for almost six months before begging to come back home to his mother, and so he left and returned home. So as far as we know, nothing bad happened at the Catholic school, but those um, did have a reputation in the 50s and 60s for being real uh, hellholes. Now, after returning home to his mother, she divorced her third husband and married for a fourth time, and things actually seemed to stabilize. By all accounts, I could find Shirley's fourth husband wasn't abusive in any way, and pretty soon the home began to feel somewhat normal. However, the damage was already done. Larry continued to act out and struggle in school, and eventually he dropped out of high school before graduating. Now, by the time he did reach high school and is when Larry began to realize that he was, in fact, gay. Something that really bothered him, and he really struggled with constantly suffering from internalized homophobia and feelings of self-hatred due to his sexuality, which is a lot like Richard Rogers, The Last Call Killer. Now, this was something that I read that actually kind of shocked me. So Larry came out to his family and his friends, and all of them were accepting of him. They didn't treat him any differently, and they all loved him the same. And like I said, again, this doesn't seem that weird, I mean, kind of weird now, but back in the 70s, the fact that he was comfortable enough to admit that to him, and the fact that they all accepted it. Like I said, you could tell his family was trying. They were they seemed like good folk. Now, even though his family accepted him, Larry still didn't accept himself and tried to be straight by having a string of girlfriends throughout high school, but none of them ever lasted that long. He eventually dropped out, but he did go back and obtain his GED. 
He briefly joined a monastery before deciding to go to college at Indiana State University. During this time, he held down a string of jobs ranging from working at a liquor store to a shoe shop to being a security guard and even sometimes just living off welfare. It was during this time that he began to at least somewhat explore his repressed sexuality and he began to venture out into the Indianapolis queer nightlife. So now he quickly became a familiar face that many in the community came to know and love. He was a bodybuilder at the time, so he was in really good shape. And he wasn't a bad looking dude by any stretch of the imagination. Many who met him often described him as being very sweet and generous towards strangers. So Larry quickly Larry quickly made a lot of friends in the community, including 38-year-old science professor Robert Little. The two quickly hit it off, and by 1975, Larry moved in with Robert in his condo located in Terre Haute, Indiana. So now, by all accounts, Larry and Robert's relationship was a platonic one. There weren't, they weren't in a relationship or had lots of sex, but Larry saw him more as a father figure, and the two kind of had a mutually beneficial relationship. Now, Robert was extremely shy and considered himself to be unattractive, so he had a really hard time meeting people and making friends, so the exact opposite of Larry. So Larry would always take him out to the bars with him and introduce him to people and even sometimes brought people back to the condo for Robert to hook up with. So in exchange, Robert took care of Larry financially. So he's essentially Larry's sugar daddy without any having to give up any sugar. Yeah, at first I was hoping this was going to be a, a healthy kind of relationship, but it seems to be a little bit of a strange one. Not that that's unhealthy to have a sugar daddy. It's just, it's uh, kind of like... I'll give you something, you give me something in return, and he's not really exploring himself. No, but it seemed to work because they, from the time they met to the time, spoiler alert, Larry's arrested, they um, they stay together. Well, like, live together. Now, even though Larry was popular and seen as a kind and gentle man, those who he took home for sexual encounters would know a completely different side to Larry that nobody else saw. Many of Larry's former hookups described him as having a very mean and even sadistic streak in the bedroom, oftentimes engaging in acts of bludgeoning them in the head, choking them almost to unconsciousness, and even even inflicting small cuts and stab wounds to their torsos and chest without their consent. Now, Larry himself openly admitted that he was into the BDSM and leather scene, but yet he kept violating, you know, the number one rule, which is uh, consent. consent. <laughs> Even with the rumors beginning to swirl about his violent sexual nature, many people just brushed it off as gossip and continued to love Larry. Little did they know that Larry's violent urges were just beginning and they were about to boil over and eventually break free outside of the bedroom in a pretty big way. So, we are back to the night of August 3rd, 1978. So that night, Larry was driving down the back roads of Terre Haute when he noticed a young man standing on the side of the road with his, thum- his thumb stuck out looking for a ride. It was 19-year-old Craig Long who was attempting to reach Voorhees Street a few miles away, and that obviously made me immediately think of Jason Voorhees. So already a bad omen. Larry pulled over and picked Craig up and began to drive off. It wasn't long after Craig got into Larry's car that Larry pulled to a stoplight before pointing out a nearby ditch close to the woods and asking Craig if he wouldn't mind helping him retrieve something from it. Don't do it, Craig. Now, of course, Craig immediately felt that something was off, and so he attempted to get out of the vehicle, and that is when Larry produced an 8-inch butcher's knife from under his seat and held it to Craig's chest. Using his free hand, Larry turned the truck around and began to head away from the city into a more remote part of town. Now, at first, Craig believed that Larry was simply trying to rob him, and so he told Larry, you know, look, man, I ain't got any money. To which Larry chillingly responded, it's not your money that I want. After pulling over close to a remote field, Larry ordered Craig to take his clothes off. Now, after Craig was stripped naked, Larry dragged him from the truck, threw him onto the tailgate before handcuffing him and binding his ankles. Larry himself began to take off his clothes, and while he was distracted... Craig decided that he was not going down without a fight, and so he kicked back and pushed Larry to the ground before taking off into the field. But now, of course, remember, his ankles are tied, so he did not get very far, before Larry tackled him and stabbed him right through the chest. 
Now, even after being stabbed, Craig had immediately fell to the ground and pretended to play dead, hoping that Larry would just leave. And after what felt like forever, I'm sure, he finally heard Larry's footsteps get back into the car and drive off. Now, he used what little strength he had left to get to his feet and stumbled to a nearby trailer park, collapsing just as he made it to a row of trailers. He used what little strength he had left to scream out for help, and that's when a couple heard him, came out, and called the police. So now, as paramedics were tending to Craig's wounds and police were assessing the scene, a truck pulled up to the house. Larry got out of the truck, walked right up to the deputies, and handed them the handcuff key to unlock Craig's cuffs telling them that he had stabbed Craig in an accident. Larry was immediately arrested. Now, why he did this, we will never truly know, but one potential reason is that Larry knew Craig could potentially pick him out of a lineup or identify his truck, and so hoping to get ahead of the police, he figured by turning himself in, he could potentially get a plea deal or just a light sentence. But again, who fucking knows with this guy? When yeah. pol- Especially, like, they find the guy like bound you know i accidentally stabbed him while he was bound that's my story and i'm sticking to it (laughs) but again who fucking knows with this guy when police searched his vehicle they found another butcher knife handcuffs and a metal tipped whip and a sword so god only knows what he was planning to do if craig didn't decide to fight back now larry was charged with aggravated battery and agreed to plead guilty for a light sentence His bond was set at $10,000, and it was raised through the help of Larry's friends in the gay nightlife scene. Because even after this incident, people still supported Larry and thought it must have been a misunderstanding. After two weeks in the hospital, Craig was released and fully intended to testify against Larry in the upcoming trial. But that's when Larry's lawyers came to Craig with an offer. A check for $2,500, courtesy of Samuel Little, or I'm sorry, Robert Little, which doesn't seem like a lot today, but back then that was the equivalent of a little over $11,000. And so it was kind of hard to pass up for Craig. So he accepted the offer and dropped the charges against Larry. In the end, Larry changed his plea to not guilty and was acquitted and released from prison. His only real punishment being a $43 fine he had to pay for court fees. So Larry had just gotten away with attempted murder. And as we've seen with cases like Richard Rogers. This only fueled his ego and bloodlust, so he thought he could get away with anything. Now, in August of 1981 is when Larry would meet a man, 20-year-old John Dovorowski, when he decided he needed a change of scenery and packed up his things and drove to Chicago. The two quickly hit it off and even decided to start a long-term, committed, and monogamous relationship. Which, Larry even living part-time at John's house and part-time at Robert's house. There was just something... A little strange about this situation, though. John was married and had five kids who also lived in the house. Now, John's wife Sally was fully aware of the relationship and her husband's fondness for men, and by all accounts, she was cool with it and even welcomed Larry to live in the home. So, of course, it may seem strange to some, but if it works for other people, that's perfect. So, by all accounts, this seemed to work for him. So, good for them. But now, the relationship worked because Larry... Like Larry, John had a penchant for extreme sadomasochism. The two men would often take turns tying each other up, beating, cutting, and whipping each other, often during sex. But all was still not perfect. Larry's insecurities from childhood would continue to rear their ugly heads and result in him constantly picking fights with John, accusing him of cheating and sleeping with other men, which is ironic considering Larry himself was also sleeping with other men at the time. These fights would sometimes get so bad that John would punch and beat up Larry with Larry never fighting back. Now, even with all of this, the couple continued to stay together and eventually got their own place so as to openly spend more time together because the only rule Sally, John's wife, had was that she didn't want to confuse the children and made sure the men had to pretend to be drinking buddies whenever they were in the house. So they they didn't want to do that. They got tired of that, so they got their own place at a nearby hotel. Now, even though he had a partner who was into pain and sex just as much as he was, it still wasn't enough for Larry. He could feel his bloodlust growing bigger and bigger, and he was ready to act on it. He wanted to be able to do whatever he wanted to someone far past the boundaries anyone would reasonably consent to on their own. And of course, as he learned from his attempted murder of Craig Long, 
He knew he'd had to kill them once he was done to keep them from going to the police. And with that, Larry Eiler would begin his murder spree. And when I say begin his murder spree, I mean this man went freaking berserk. Like over 20 dudes in the span of like two years. Oh, wow. So let me start off by saying we will never truly know how many young men Larry actually killed. He's positively linked to at least 21 murders, but police are more than confident that his body count is much higher and new victims are still being identified and discovered to this day, actually. I think it was about two years ago. I mentioned it later on, but like two years ago, there's a missing boy that was found and linked to being an unknown victim of Larry. So we're going to walk through the timeline of events as we know it. Now, the first murder positively linked to Larry, or he's expected of, he's never confessed to this one, but police think 99% sure that he did it. On March 22nd, 1982, which, side note, is my birthday, the date, not the year, a bartender named Jay Reynolds was found stabbed to death on a deserted road right outside Lexington, Kentucky. Exact details are very fuzzy, but Larry was not suspected at all in this murder, and it remained a cold case for quite a while before police finally linked it when they discovered their ever-growing body count. Now, on October 3rd, 1982, 14-year-old Devoid Baker was found strangled to death and dumped by a road right outside Indianapolis. And just a few weeks later, on October 12th, 1982, Larry Larry parked his truck outside of a bar on the outskirts of Chicago. He waited in his truck looking over all the men who exited, searching for a potentially easy target. And that's when he spotted 21-year-old construction worker Craig Townsend. As Craig was walking back to his car, Larry rolled down his window and offered a beer to Craig, which he accepted and climbed into Larry's truck. Now, Larry also gave Craig a few pills, which he said were speed, but in fact were actually a very heavy sedative called ethylchlorvanol. It wasn't long after this that Craig fell unconscious and Larry drove off with the man in his car. Now, Larry drove Craig to a remote field and proceeded to strip him naked, savagely beat him all over his body. However, for some reason, just as he was about to kill him, Larry had a change of heart and instead dumped Craig in the field and sped off. Now, Craig was found the next morning suffering from exposure and taken to a hospital where he made a full recovery, thankfully. However, before police could question him, Craig escaped from the hospital not wanting to admit he'd been assaulted by a man or possibly he was just ashamed so this guy's lucky twice now mm-hmm. it's just like a richard rogers the more luck he has the more cocky and bold he gets and he gets pretty fucking bold he has to be he, to kill that many people in two years like he's killing people like every week to two weeks oh yeah just, well like just i'm gonna start going down the line it's like every three days he's like another one another one Now, Larry never officially gave a reason as to why he let Craig live, but police believe it's due to the fact that Larry did not get as much satisfaction from torturing unconscious victims. He enjoyed hearing them scream, and he wanted to see the fear in their eyes. And so Craig was just happened to be lucky that he never woke up. Now, just 11 days later, on October 23rd, a 19-year-old named Stephen Crockett disappeared from the hotel where he was staying at which also just so happened to be the same hotel where Larry and John rented a room so they could have their alone time. We don't know exactly what happened or how they met, but of course it's more than likely that Larry befriended the young man or possibly even seduced him and gained his trust. Just 12 hours after he disappeared, Stephen's body was discovered in a cornfield right outside Lowell, Indiana. He had been beaten and stabbed 32 times, with four, five of them being directly into his head. So, of course, it's important to note at this point, police still weren't really seeing a pattern amongst the victims, so the idea of a serial killer didn't even cross their minds. But that was about to change because Larry was about to ramp up his rampage. Just a week after Stephen was found murdered, a 26-year-old man named Edgar Underkulfer would disappear from Rantoul, Illinois, and I'm sorry if I pronounce these towns wrong, but they're a lot of really weird names. But his body would not be found until it was discovered in a field, a field near Danville, Illinois, in March of 1983. A week after Edgar's disappearance, Larry abducted and murdered a man named Robert Foley before dumping his body in a field right outside Joliet, Illinois. In the weeks following Robert's murder, Larry would abduct, abduct, <laughs> Larry would abduct and murder a 25-year-old bartender named John Johnson, 
who was a barback at a bar close to the hotel where Larry and John were often stay. His body would not be discovered until Christmas Day of 1982 in a field right outside of Lowell, Indiana. So already he's dumping them in a field every time. So it's mm-hmm. like you would think they would think maybe there's something up with all these guys just turning up in fields here lately. Yeah, you would think so. And we're already up to, what, seven or eight victims at this point? I'm going to go ahead and mention that Larry committed over 21 in the span of less than two years. So he, was on, he wasn't on he was on a murder spree. He was on a freaking rampage across Illinois and Indiana. On the night of December 19th, 1982, Larry was driving around Terre Haute, Indiana, searching for his next victim. But this time, according to him, he wasn't alone. According to Larry, Robert Little was also in the car, and Larry had told them, and Larry had told Robert that they were looking for a sexual adventure, which he said Robert knew meant a murder victim. Now that is when they spotted a 23-year-old man named Stephen Agin attempting to hitchhike. Now Larry actually knew Stephen at least in passing because he frequented the car wash where Larry worked or where Stephen worked, and so Larry pulled over and offered him a ride. Stephen accepted, and almost immediately after getting into the car, Larry drugged him and then drove off out of the city into an abandoned farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. Now, once at the farmhouse, Stephen was hung upside down before being savagely beaten by Larry and then stabbed to death. But Larry was not finished. Even after Stephen was already dead, Larry continued to stab and slash at Stephen's body. Some of the cuts were so deep that Stephen's organs began to be exposed and fall out. Now, according to Larry, Robert was an active participant in this murder and even took photographs of the whole thing while masturbating. Now, we'll talk about that later, but Robert denies all of this. This sounds like Henry portrait of a serial killer, kind of the gay version of it. It kind of is. I actually think Henry might be based partially off this case, or at least some aspects of it. Now, Stephen's body would not be found until December 28th, uh, three days after... John Johnson's, in a remote field close to Indiana State Road 63, the medical examiner who who conducted the autopsy said they were shocked at just the amount of tremendous rage used during the attack. After conducting the autopsy on Stephen, the medical examiner started work on another body of one of another of Larry's victims who had just been found that day too. 21-year-old occasional sex worker named John Roach, whose body was found off Route 70, Like Stephen, he suffered multiple stab wounds and mutilations to his corpse, suggesting a lot of rage on the killer's part. Now, this is when the M.E. started to piece together the similarities between Stephen and John's case, and he contacted the police to say, look, I think the same dude killed both these people. However, since both bodies were found over 50 miles apart in different jurisdictions, police dismissed the claims of a potential serial killer. Just... Two days after the bodies of Stephen and John were found, on the night of December 30th, 22-year-old Yale University student David Block told his family that he was going to go visit a friend a few towns over and drove off into the night. His car would be found broken down about 30 miles outside of Chicago, and police believe that it's possible he began to hitchhike when he was picked up by Larry. After picking David up, Larry beat and stabbed him to death before dumping his body in a remote field where it would not be found until May 7th, 1984. And so he's just driving around, picking up whoever he sees. It's just completely at random. And often. That's scary. And often. He, this mother effer is just ramping it up. It's just the more he does it, the more he can't seem to wait long periods. So on January 24th, 1983, Larry abducted a 16-year-old boy named Irvin Gibson from Lake City, Illinois. Now, Irvin had been recently released from a juvenile detention center and occasionally did sex work to support himself. So police believe that's how Larry lured him into his car. Now, Larry again stabbed Irvin to death before dumping his body in a wooded area right outside of town, and it would not be discovered until April 15th. So now from March to April 1983... Larry murdered a minimum of five more young men and several more disappeared under mysterious circumstances, including 19-year-old John Bartlett, an Army vet, 22-year-old Michael Bauer, and John Ingram. All three were buried together in a shallow grave in a wooded area right outside of Chicago. Now, John Ingram was the one, he had remained a John Doe until about 2021, until he was finally identified. 
So, like I said, he's got victims that are still being identified to this day. So he buried these three, though. Yeah, so all three of these were buried together in a shallow grave. Which is different than what he's been doing, because he's just been, like, killing people and dropping them in a field and not really, like, trying to hide anything almost. mm -hmm. I mean, he's just, like, brutally savaging these people, dropping them in a field and just going on to his next victim. Yeah, he's just... Kills him, moving on to the next. But this one he did try to hide, I guess, because he did all three of them so close together. And they will come up again. Now, on March 20th, 1983, 17-year-old Richard Wayne arrived in Chicago where he phoned his mother to let her know he made it safe before ending the call by telling her he planned to find a career out there and build her a big house for the two of them to live together. After hanging up the phone, it's believed Richard hitched a ride with Larry, who proceeded to stab him to death and dump his body in a field. So, of course, this is getting insane. Larry's bloodlust is literally escalating to the point he's killing four to five people a month. There's That's almost more than once a week. And the police still don't suspect him of anything. Nobody is looking for him, and that's only caused his ego and bloodthirst to grow. And I should say, this whole time, he's also still in a committed relationship with John. And so they still spend time together, and John's completely oblivious to it. And he's still uh, talking to his sugar daddy, Robert. So he's a busy man. Two weeks after murdering Richard, Larry met 29-year-old Gustavo Herrera at a gay bar in Chicago. The two hit it off, and Gustavo agreed to go home with Larry, but soon after getting into his car, Larry drugged him before driving him out to a deserted construction site outside of town. Larry proceeded to stab Gustavo to death before hacking off his right hand and then dumping the body. So at this point, Larry has mutilated his victims, but he's never dismembered parts of them, so he's escalating. He still hasn't been caught, and his confidence is growing that he can get away with more and more. But of course, that is about to change. So on May 7th, 1983, Larry would meet 22-year-old sex worker Daniel McNeve at an Indianapolis gay bar. After chatting for a while, Daniel agreed to go with Larry, but once inside his truck, Larry drugged and then bound Daniel before driving to the outskirts of town. Two days later, Daniel's body was discovered in a field by a farmer. He had been stabbed 27 times, with most of the wounds being to his neck and abdomen. His pants had been pulled down to his ankles, although no signs of sexual assault were found. Now, his body was taken in for an autopsy, And it just so happened to be the same medical examiner who did the autopsy for Stephen and John's bodies a few months earlier. And of course, he immediately saw the similarities between the cases. Again, he called the police and again told them about how he believes all three men were victims of the same killer. And surprisingly, this time police actually believed him. A task force was immediately formed, which was nicknamed the Gay Homicide Task Force. And they, in turn, got in touch with the FBI, and with their help, they actually began to search for unsolved murders involving male victims all across the Midwest and southern United States. So it took them a while, but, I mean, when they did finally take it seriously, they hit the ball rolling. This, of course, led them back to Larry's first murder of Jay Reynolds in Lexington, as well as several others close by. It also led to a discovery of another victim, 18-year-old Jimmy Roberts, whose body was found with 35 stab wounds. So now all of these murders are starting to get connected at a rapid pace, and police are beginning to realize the severity of the situation. Now, it was at this point authorities nicknamed him the then-unknown killer, the Highway Murderer. You would think they would name him something with field in it. like You would, too. I was like reading this as like the Highway Killer, and it says like it's close by to um, a lot of highways, but it's always in a field. So I figured they'd give him something like the Texas Killing Field type name, but... You know, I guess the field murderer doesn't sound as catchy. Doesn't sell as many papers. Now, of course, this shocked the queer community, who now up to this point at both Indianapolis and Chicago. Now, for this whole time, a lot of them were trying to bring attention to the police. Like, hey, there's a lot of queer people being found murdered and disappearing around here. I think someone's stalking our community. Of course, they were brushed off. But now, many in the community began to actually work together in attempts to work with police and raise awareness of a potential serial killer. Now that the news has been confirmed, like, yeah, there is a serial killer targeting you guys, they actually decided to work together with police. They started 
hanging up flyers. They even up, opened up their own hotline for tips. The community even rallied together and set up an anonymous hotline as well as a $1,500 reward for any information. There was a serial killer stalking the queer community, and that put everyone on high alert, including Larry himself. Now, at this point, he realized the police are getting too close for comfort and that he would have to stop killing. So, of course, without an outlet for his rage, Larry began getting increasingly violent towards his partner, John, and the two were constantly fighting. So, just... I don't know why he's this freaking angry, but he is like, he needs an outlet to get rid of this anger. So the two are constantly fighting physically and verbally. And after one particularly brutal fight between the two, Larry stormed out of the house and began making the drive to Robert's house to spend the night. He was fuming at this point and it was getting hard for him to contain his rage And that's when he spotted a young male hitchhiker on the side of the road. Now, sadly, this man has never been identified and still remains a mystery to this day. But according to Larry, he offered the man $75 for sex. And when the man agreed, he got into the car and was given a sedative and vodka by Larry. Larry then drove the man out to an abandoned farm near where he buried the three victims that he put together in the same grave. He tied the man up, told the man to make his peace with God before stabbing him to death. Now, this is a very disgusting detail that I had to mention because it's just, it, the straw that broke the camel's back, pretty much. So in case you didn't think Larry was a big enough piece of shit, Larry would later say that he buried the John Doe in a separate grave away from the three previous victims, as the three previous victims were all white and the John Doe was African American and he said he didn't think it was proper to bury them side by side. So, a racist on top of being a murderous shitbag. Now, it was around this time that the task force opened up their own tip hotline and quickly received a tip that would spell the beginning of the end for Larry Eiler. On June 6, 1983, the task force received a call from a man named Thomas Henderson, a former lover of Larry's. Tom told police that he believed Larry was the one behind the murders, Tom told them about how Larry had been arrested for stabbing a man in 1978 and also about his drugging and abduction of a 14-year-old boy that he left naked in a field. He loves fields. He also told them about Larry's violent sexual fantasies. Now, this was not enough for police to, you know, arrest him or anything, but they did decide to look further into Larry's background. And that's when they discovered his frequent trips from Indianapolis to Chicago. And that's where most of the murders took place as well. So after interviewing several members of the queer community, they also confirmed Larry's violent sexual nature. Now this was a good start, but like I said, it wasn't enough for the police to really do anything except keep a loose eye on Larry's movements, but that did not include 24 hour surveillance. So he was kind of free to come and go as he pleased still. Now, eight weeks after the murder of John Doe on August 31st, Larry picked up 28 year old Ralph Carlisle, It's unclear how the two crossed paths, but two days later, a tree-trimming crew would find Ralph's body dumped in a field close to Illinois' Route 60. He had been bound with surgical tape and his pants around his ankles and stabbed 17 times. The stab so brutal that his small intestine was actually exposed. He had been dead less than 12 hours. His body was just feet away from where several other of his victims had been found. And so this case was quickly linked to the other highway killings. So he's using the same field now, too. Yeah, he uses the same fields. I guess he's run out of fields because he's killed so many people. I know. I know the Midwest is kind of flat, but damn. So at this point, police had linked 17 murders to the same killer, and they're finding new bodies almost every day. So this is like active, active. They're not looking for one that's like done murdering. They're looking for one that's still murdering as they investigate. Now, Larry knew the police were on to him in Indiana, but he didn't realize that the investigation had crossed state lines, and so he continued his hunt for new victims in Chicago. A month later, on October 4th, mushroom hunters in Wisconsin discovered plastic bags hidden in the woods, and inside they found the severed torso, arms, and legs of a young man who was quickly identified as 18-year-old Eric Hansen, who had disappeared a week before. His head and his hands were never found. And this is um this is the other murder that police are more than certain that Larry's uh committed. However, he didn't actually admit to it. 
and there's really no evidence, like solid evidence to confirm he did it, but they think more than likely he was the culprit. Seems different than his M.O., though. You would think, but just wait. I mean, he did cut a guy's hand off. Mm-hmm. So on September 30th, 1983, Larry left a gay bar in Chicago after failing to pick up a new victim and began to drive down Interstate 65 when he spotted a young man hitchhiking along the road. Larry stopped and picked up Daryl Hayward. After getting into the car, Larry offered Daryl $100 if he could tie him up, and Daryl agreed. Now that's when Larry pulled over on the side of the interstate near a ditch, and the two men got out of the truck and walked down into the ditch. However, once down there, Daryl still felt exposed and uncomfortable and asked if they could find somewhere more private, and Larry agreed. So the two made their way back out of the ditch and back to the truck, and that's when a police sergeant pulled in behind them. Again, ballsy motherfucker. He's just like going to do it on the side of the interstate, just pulled off to the side. Now, God only knows what Larry would have done if Daryl had let him get tied up in that ditch, but thankfully he didn't. The officer pulled them over because Larry had parked illegally, and so he radioed dispatch to check Larry's registration, and that is when he discovered Larry was the prime suspect in an ongoing murder case. Now, they didn't have any evidence of the murders right away, but they did arrest Larry for solicitation from the hitchhiker. During his interrogation, police confronted him straight up about his suspected involvement with the murders, and of course he denied everything. Not only this, he even agreed to give his DNA and fingerprints to investigators. Now, investigators did search Larry's truck and found nylon rope, a hammer, surgical tape, as well as several knives hidden underneath the seat. Even with all the evidence, Larry was let go, and he immediately hired a lawyer to file a suit against the PD because he never agreed to a search of his truck, and it had been done illegally. And so his lawyer filed an appeal to have it suppressed. Now, even though he was free to go and even given his truck back, Larry had now officially become the prime suspect, and police began to focus hard on his movements starting with obtaining a search warrant for the home of Robert Little, where Larry often stayed. There, they found credit card receipts and phone records placing Larry in the area at the time of multiple murders, as well as matching the tire tracks found at the Ralph Carlisle crime scene to Larry's truck. And most damning of all, footprints left at Ralph's murder scene matched a pair of boots owned by Larry. So it's, um, it's not looking good. Oh, it's looking good. I mean, it's looking good. It's not looking good for Larry in his mind, but it's looking good for everyone else. Now, on October 29th, Larry was officially arrested for the murder of Ralph Carlisle, and his bond was set at a million dollars, but there was still a bit of a problem. The suit Larry filed against the PD about his illegally detained about being illegally detained and his truck unlawfully searched was still on the table. And a judge agreed. Any evidence collected during the time Larry was in custody could not be used in court. His bond was also lowered to $10,000, and he was officially released on bond on February 6, 1984. One condition of his bond release, though, was that he, could, he couldn't leave the state, and so he had to officially relocate to Chicago a few weeks later to an apartment complex in Rogers Park. Now, at this point, of course, police have fully zeroed in on Larry, and we're getting a proper case together to take him to trial. So you would think that would be enough to cool, for him to cool it, right? Well, Larry's bloodlust was so strong that apparently not even being charged with first-degree murder could stop him from committing uh, heinous acts. And so he would go on to commit one more confirmed murder after his release from jail. So on August 14th, 1984, at around 10.30 at night, 16-year-old Daniel Bridges left his sister's home, telling her that he needed some air before disappearing into the night. Now, we don't know all of the details of how Daniel crossed paths with Larry, because Daniel actually knew Larry, or he knew of Larry, and he knew one of Larry's previous victims, Irvin Gibson. He was a good friend of his. Now, Daniel also worked as a sex worker from time to time, and was even interviewed for a documentary about child neglect in early 1984 for NBC. And I looked everywhere. I could not find the documentary. But he actually, during the tape interview, he actually called out Larry, calling him a real freak. And that most sex workers in the area avoided him. But somehow Larry got 
Daniel to get into his truck, and that's when Larry proceeded to drug him and take him back to his apartment. Once in the apartment, Daniel was tied to a chair where Larry proceeded to beat and torture him before stabbing him to death. But he was not done because now he faced a new problem. What was he going to do with this body? Because his apartment doesn't have any fields. Larry proceeded to hack Daniel's body into eight pieces, completely draining each one of blood before wrapping them in individual garbage bags. So again, kind of like the last call killer. Afterwards, he dumped the remains in a nearby dumpster of his apartment, the same apartment complex. And I guess he just kind of hoped that it would all go away. But it didn't go away. On August 21st, Daniel's remains were found in the dumpster by a maintenance worker. The worker noticed the trash bags were in a dump that was off limits to tenants at the building. And so he went to remove them thinking someone just dumped them there illegally. Only for one of the bags to rip open and a human leg fell out. Of course, police were called right away and quickly arrived at the scene where several other janitors in the building stated they noticed the bags being tossed into the dumpster by none other than Larry Eiler. Now, literally within minutes of finding this out, police burst into Larry's apartment and both him and John Dobrovolsky were arrested and taken down to the station for questioning. Now, John, of course, was released Later that same day, police interviewed him and quickly found out he had nothing to do with it. And uh, But they did send in a forensic team to examine the apartment for evidence, and boy, did they find evidence. The team conducted luminol tests all throughout the apartment, and it lit up like a damn Christmas tree, with Daniel's blood being everywhere. Traces of his blood were discovered on a chair, the sofa, the mattress in the bedroom, on several walls and knobs in the kitchen, and even under the floorboards. Daniel's clothing was also found stashed inside of a closet, and Larry's fingerprints were found all over the trash bags used to store Daniel's remains. So they were, uh, there was really no getting around this. The jig was kind of up. On August 22nd, Larry was officially charged with Daniel's murder. Now, of course, Larry did not have anything to do with it, and he even had an explanation for why his fingerprints were all over the bags. He said that they got there because he moved the bags in order to make room for his own trash that he tossed into the dumpster. But, you know, that still doesn't really explain um, how Daniel's blood got all over your apartment or uh, literally, like, splattered all over your apartment. So Larry's luck could kind of run out. There was no getting around this, and so his case was going to trial. Now, at the trial, the prosecutor's key witnesses were the two men closest to Larry, John Dobrovolsky and Robert Little. Both of them corroborated Larry's whereabouts and placed him at his apartment on the night of the murder. Now, up to this point, both men had been very big defenders of Larry, often telling people that police were unfairly targeting him and putting the blame on him. But after being confronted with the literal stacks of evidence against him for Daniel's murder, they finally saw the truth. But even still, during this whole time, even though he was testifying against him, Robert still paid all of Larry's legal fees. I was wondering, too, you know, like, he had to move to Chicago. Mm-hmm. So did he not have a job? Was he just taken care of and had plenty of time to just run around and murder people? He had a sugar daddy. That's what Robert was for. He had um, jobs from time to time as a house painter, and uh, he kind of supplemented his income with that. But for the most part, no. When he wanted money, he went to daddy, who was Robert Little. They gave him plenty of time to do all the stuff he was doing. Yeah, they so. should have called him the sugar daddy killer. Well, he didn't kill the sugar well, daddy. Well, he didn't kill the sugar daddy. But he's like, it was his sugar daddy that gave him the financial freedom to just go on a rampage. Now, after several weeks of back and forth, the jury deliberated for just three hours before returning with a verdict. Larry Eiler was found guilty in the murder of Daniel Bridges and sentenced to death. Now, death didn't seem to be something Larry himself wanted because he began to try everything in his power to get out of it. In 1990, when he learned they were going to try him for the murder of Stephen Agin, he attempted to cut a deal by accusing Robert Little of helping him carry it out. In fact, he said the whole thing was Robert's idea to begin with, and he was afraid to say no. So now he's turned on his sugar daddy. Now, Robert was arrested and went on trial in 1991, with Larry being the prosecution's star witness. However, Robert had several people testify that he was in fact in Florida during the whole time of Stephen's murder, and he literally physically couldn't even be there. 
So without any solid evidence other than Larry's testimony, Stephen was found not guilty and let go. Now, Larry sat on death row for several years, but before he could be put to death, on March 6, 1994, Larry died in the infirmary of his prisons from complications related to AIDS. Two days after his death, his lawyer released a posthumous confession in which Larry admitted to the murder of 21 men between 1982 and 1984, stating that Robert was his accomplice in at least four of the murders and that he killed them all in order to appease his sexual urges. So now, four of Larry's victims still remain unidentified, and he is still the prime suspect in several unsolved murders, so police are still looking into his case to this day. Robert Little has maintained his innocence and lack of knowledge in any of Larry's killings, and John passed away in 1990 from complications with AIDS. And with that, that's the story of Larry Eiler, the highway killer. He died before he could really see justice be served, and even though he gave a confession to all these murders, it still wasn't the whole truth, because even in death, he was still trying to incriminate his longtime benefactor, Robert Little. So he was a true bastard till the end. I can't believe you don't hear more about this. I mean, that's a very high kill count. The The murders are horrific and mm-hmm. very brutal. And you just don't hear about that one very much. It's really weird which cases do get really infamous and which ones don't. Because, you know, you have certain killers that are really haven't murdered that many people, like five or six people, but like everyone knows about them. There's like a million freaking documentaries on Netflix about them. But then you have like some of the most like prolific killers in history, like Larry Eiler or Samuel Little, um, which we might cover him in the future, but they've killed literally like in the twenties, thirties, forties of people. And of course, I mean, there's a few out there, but not as many as you would think. So it's always fascinating to me to, like try to figure out like what makes certain cases get more traction and attention with the general public. Um, Maybe there's a study out there figuring it out. I don't know, but I definitely think this is one of those cases that I'm surprised doesn't get talked about more. And it is a, a truly brutal case. All right. And with that, thank you guys for tuning in for another week. Uh, If you liked us, please follow us on Instagram at beers with queers pod that's pod pod or on facebook at beers with queers a true crime podcast we post photos from every episode and every case we do and if you're enjoying the podcast please rate us five stars on spotify or itunes and leave us a review if you're so kind it helps us out a lot we love to hear feedback from you guys and until next week stay dangerous out there see you soon bye